Hi, you're listening to Society Bites Radio, and this is Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Handel. Some months ago, my niece gave me a copy of the Pennsylvania Gazette, a magazine published by the University of Pennsylvania. My niece earned her master's in social work at Penn, and as soon as she saw the cover of the fall 2020 issue, she knew I'd love the lead article entitled Fair Justice for All. The article highlights the Quattrone Center for the Fair Administration of Justice, an organization based at the University of Pennsylvania, launched in 2013 with Associate Dean John Holloway of Penn's Cary Law School at the helm. He is the author of several publications. One of them is Killing Time, an 18-year odyssey from death row to freedom, which won the National Independent Book Award for nonfiction in 2011. He's a graduate of George Washington University Law School, and he earned a master's from Penn. We welcome Dean Holloway to the program, along with three of his colleagues, who will be our guests for the next few podcasts. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having us. You're welcome. Let's begin uh, with your overview of something called Sentinel Event Reviews. What actually is that? So uh, a Sentinel event, this is actually going to sort of uh, the systems approach that the Quattrone Center uses, which is to look at criminal justice as a system and try to figure out where in the system uh, unwanted or undesired outcomes are happening, and then what, figure out what changes in a system we can make to do that. Um, people have a natural resistance to change, as, as you may know. Nobody loves the idea of change. And so um, often it takes a very large unwanted outcome to convince people of a need for change. If you think about um, aviation, a, you know, a plane crash or a trucking accident or a train derailment, uh, or in a, ho in a hospital setting where you've got complex systems, uh, a, uh, operating on somebody's right arm instead of their left arm, uh, or a medication error that, that injures a patient, these are things that then get called sentinel events because they're sufficiently large and unacceptable that they galvanize people's attention and willingness to change. It's like, wow, if something of that magnitude can happen, we must really know that, that, that we've got to do something different and we've got to learn from that and make sure that doesn't happen again. And so sentinel events are things that have come up in, you, you know, the Challenger exploding was a sentinel event for NASA or uh, Three Mile Island was a sentinel event for nuclear safety. And so uh, those are things that happen in criminal justice as well. And we at the Quattrone Center try to bring the participants in those events in criminal justice together and run them through a process uh, to figure out what the underlying contributing factors of those events are uh, so that we can then fix those contributing factors and in so doing, make the criminal justice system operate the way it's, it's supposed to. Right. Um, one of the things that we know is that 2,800 people have been exonerated since the National Registry of Exonerations began keeping records in 1989. And last year, there were 129 exonerations across the nation. Out of those, 87 were due to official misconduct. 
and perjury was also a part of, of uh, many of those, 103 uh, exonerations. Junk science accounted for 38 cases. So what we know those major factors which contribute to a wrongful conviction and cases of wrongful conviction occur again and again. How can we find a way to stop the cycle of putting people behind bars for decades, people who are innocent? Well, um, we believe that one of the ways to do that is through these Sentinel event reviews. So, uh, for example, uh, we looked at a case uh, in Philadelphia that happened uh, right around the turn of the year, from 2000, end of the year of 2000, beginning of the year of 2001, um, called the Lex Street Massacre. It was actually the largest, still is, the largest mass murder in Philadelphia history. Uh, and it was an instance in which uh, a house at which drugs were being sold uh, for men invaded the house, gathered the 10 occupants of the house, uh, laid them all face down on the ground floor and just started shooting and killed seven of them and seriously wounded the other three. Uh, as you might expect, there was a large manhunt. There was an offer by the mayor of a reward for information leading to the arrest of the perpetrators. Uh, the police uh, you know, were working around the clock, uh, ultimately secured a confession from a 19-year-old man uh, he identified three perpetrators. They arrested all four of the perpetrators, uh, and everything seemed to be good, except that 18 months later on the eve of trial, the case totally unraveled, and it turned out that it was four completely different men who had committed the crime for a completely different motive, and you know everything was, <laughs> was wrong. Um, and so the question that we asked was, you know, how did we manage to arrest the four wrong, four wrong men and not know about it for an additional 18 months, but then find out about it, um, you know, on the eve of trial. And how could we have done that better? So we sat down with representatives from the DA's office, uh, the Defender Association, the uh, uh, Philadelphia Police, and the Court of Common Pleas. And we interviewed a number of the people that had participated in the investigation in the, in the, from the prosecutor's office on the defense attorney side and with the courts. Uh, and we recognized a number of things that were problematic. We, you know, there were challenges with uh, witness interviews. There were issues with the false confession that a young man had given that nobody knew was false. There were um, a sort of parallel investigations going on without everybody knowing about it. And from that, we generated a bunch of uh, recommendations that weren't targeted towards specific individuals, but were instead targeted towards specific roles and activities. And the idea was to, in, you know, there, there's a saying in the, in the safety literature that we can't change the human condition. Humans are going to make mistakes, but we can change the conditions in which humans operate. And so what we tried to do was to change some of the rules around uh, witness interviews, around investigations, around the role of the media, uh, so that we could provide more information sooner to different people and allow them, either in the case of the police, to make better identifications or in the case of the attorneys, both prosecutors and defense, to be better sort of checks and balances on the information they were given to identify that, that inaccurate arrest and that inaccurate incarceration more, more quickly. Um, does a Sentinel event review include uh, a checks and balances component? Is that part of it? Oh, definitely, yeah. So. So the, the idea here is that in order for a wrongful conviction to happen, 
you, somewhere somebody has to identify the wrong person. Usually, I mean, that's going ha- to happen in the investigation phase. That's going to happen with the police. You can't have a wrongful conviction without first having a wrongful arrest. But what then happens is that, so first a, a, a police investigator identifies and says, you know, I think this is the person who did it. I'm going to arrest this person. Well, then there's a sergeant who has to approve that arrest. Then there's a prosecutor who has to approve that arrest. They charge the individual. Now the prosecutor has to review the case again to decide what they're going to charge. Now, at this point, the person who's been wrongfully, already wrongfully arrested now gets a defense counsel. The defense counsel's job is to be there to prevent that from turning into a wrongful conviction, right? That's, that's why you have a defense lawyer, to represent you and tell your story of innocence. Uh, and then we have a court who reviews that and maybe a jury, if it goes to a jury trial, who's supposed to review that. Each of those steps along the way is supposed to be a check and balance on the accuracy of the process. So the first officer, the, the supervising sergeant, the prosecutor, the defense, the court, they're all there to prevent that inaccurate arrest from turning into an inaccurate conviction. And from a system improvement perspective, that's a wonderful opportunity because what it means is every wrongful conviction is a situation where literally every part of the way hasn't done their job, whether their job was to identify the right person or to be that check and balance and catch a mistake that was made. We failed at every step. And that means there's a tremendous opportunity for learning where we can help each part of the system better perform its role. Right, right. Um, there, there are things that we certainly know, like um, things like eyewitness testimony. And when that's used and it's uncorroborated, that's trouble. Or using a jailhouse snitch, uh, which often uh, ends up that the person is lying because they have something to gain. Why do we do the same things again and again. Why do we use jailhouse niches? Why do we um, include eyewitness testimony that's uncorroborated? That that's taking us down, uh, you know, a, 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 a difficult road, and and possibly or often leading to a wrongful conviction. Why why are we stuck in kind of a pattern that we know is is a negative one? Well, I think that there part of the challenge that we have is the fact that some eyewitness identifications are inaccurate does not mean that the one you and I are talking about in this instance is inaccurate, mm-hmm. right? An eyewitness identification without corroboration is more likely to be inaccurate than an eyewitness identification that has some physical corroboration, but mm-hmm. it's not guaranteed to be not accurate. And so the mm-hmm. question is, how do we better diagnose you know, which eyewitness IDs are accurate and which aren't. Are we using best practices in doing that eyewitness identification to maximize its accuracy? Um, and do the people that are, that are performing these even know what those best practices are? I mean, you know, one of the things that we learned, uh, I was on a, uh, working with the Third Circuit Court of Appeals here in Philadelphia on eyewitness identification education Um, And one of the things that we learned was that um, federal investigators in Pennsylvania don't actually get training on eyewitness identification, best practices and procedures. So they're doing what they've done in the past, as opposed to embracing some of the newer science on some of these issues. Uh, And it's not when I say newer science, I mean, it's stuff that we've been talking about for a decade or more 
but it still hasn't made its way through the system. So sometimes we have an awareness challenge. Um, sometimes we have um, uh, a, a, an intentionality challenge, right? There are people who go ahead and, and can cut corners uh, when they shouldn't. Um, and sometimes we just have a new situation we haven't seen before, and we need to learn from it and change our processes to account for it. So all of those things contribute to um, the persistence of errors. Right. Um, the uh, I wondered, did you want to um, talk about uh, W. Edwards Deming's work and how that connects to uh, what's going on at the Quattrone Center or no? Um, I, I mean, I, I certainly could. It's not, I, I mean, you know, what we try to do at the Quattrone Center uh, is we try to make sure that, that everything that we're doing is data-driven. Um, that means different things in different contexts, but there is a great systems scientist uh, from the 70s who worked with Toyota and others on their manufacturing quality named uh, W. Edwards Deming. And Deming has a quote that, that has always really appealed to me. And basically the quote is, um, you know, if, if you're not using data, you're just another guy with an opinion. And mm -hmm. so it can be very easy in policy disputes or policy debates in criminal justice for people to have very, very, uh, very, very strongly held opinions. Uh, and it's an adversarial process. So, you know, criminal justice is used to using uh, argument to, to resolve debates. Um, one of the things that we try to do is use data to bring people together. And, you know, you referenced um, some data about the number of exonerees and the, the uh, different types of things that have, that have contributed to um, wrongful convictions. The thing that really, really made that possible was DNA. Uh, once we started having DNA testing, we could actually have scientific data that would either prove or disprove whether somebody was at a scene, whether somebody had committed a sexual assault, for example, whatever it might be. And that data cut through people's beliefs or opinions of what had actually happened at a crime. And once we realized that that hard data could kind of get through opinions, it actually brought people together to figure out what actually happened. And so that's been a really important part of what the Quattrone Center tries to do is to use data to bring people together from different parts of the system so that everybody can figure out, you know, what's really going on in the system, which then guides us to uh, what we want the solution to be on how we want to make the system better. Why? Can you um, possibly explain maybe the steps um, of a Sentinel uh, event review and how many people are involved and maybe the roles they play um, maybe even using a specific case, if that makes it easier for you? Sure, yeah. So the, the, the key to a Sentinel event review is you try to gather uh, all of the organizations that participated in whatever your error is. So, for example, we worked with the Tucson Police Department last summer. They had two situations in which um, uh, Latino men had been in the custody of police and had had sudden cardiac events and died in handcuffs. Um, and so obviously that's an undesired outcome. Each of those is a sentinel event. And so what we did was we worked with the Tucson Police Department and we gathered all of the organizations that had participated in those cases. So that was the, the Tucson Police Department, obviously the Tucson Fire Department, their 911 dispatch service. And we also gathered together a group of community 
uh, and other participants, people from the city council, people from the, the community at large who cared about police work and were working on police reform. And then what we did was, I, in a perfect world, you would be able to actually interview the participants because what you really want to know is if you assume at the beginning that nobody wanted this person to die in custody, the question then becomes, well, why did it happen anyway? And what are the what are the things that the officers and the other participants were thinking about that caused them to act the way they did? Because ultimately, those are actions we want to change. And so the analogy that I would that I would give is this is a little bit like talking to an NFL quarterback who's just thrown an interception. Right. The, the quarterback is well trained. He's one of the best people in the world at what he does. He's run this play a bunch of times. He knows how it's supposed to go. And then the ball gets hiked and it's total chaos and men are running around every place and there's all sorts of distractions going on. And in a snap moment, the quarterback decides that this pass is his best outcome. And it turns out it doesn't work that way, that he gets a, a bad outcome, the interception. And so then what we do is we try to sit down and basically talk to the police officers as if we were talking to that quarterback and looking at the videotape. And we try to break the situation down and say, tell me what you saw, tell me what you saw. Tell me what you think, why you thought this was the right thing for you to do. And then we work backwards from that with our group to say, okay, what are the things that we think came together to cause this undesired outcome? And once we know what those contributing factors are, what changes would we make to the system to prevent those contributing factors from happening again? And so in the case of these deaths in custody, we came up with a number of recommendations for information that would be passed from 911 to the police officers that might have changed their initial approach to the situations. Um, we talked about maybe some changes to equipment uh, that the officers have that might have allowed them to approach the situations differently. Um, we talked about um, uh, the way that once somebody has been put in custody and subdued, the handoff that you make from uh, the police to paramedics who are on the scene to evaluate the health of the suspect who's now in handcuffs, uh, a number of those sort of systems changes, again, that are there to make sure that unintended outcomes don't happen. And in fact, that we are taking care of these people appropriately so that we don't get these bad cardiac events. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. What, what kind of response have you gotten as a, a center in terms of changing people's uh, beliefs about wrongful conviction and what needs to be done about it. Do you get any pushback ever? Um, sure, there's always pushback. I mean, I think um, anytime people are, are asked to try a new process, um, there's, there's going to be a little bit of resistance. What people like about our process is the, 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 when people hear about a wrongful conviction, there is a very quick progression to, and especially with some of the, the statistics you cited about the amount of official misconduct is there. It's important to distinguish misconduct from intentional misconduct. Right? Mm -hmm. There are things that people can do that, that they, may, they may not turn over appropriate evidence, for example. A prosecutor might not turn over exculpatory evidence, which is an obligation that they have under the law. Right. That prosecutor may do that intentionally, or the prosecutor may have asked the police for it, but never received it from the police and not known it was there, right? And so it's important to be able to differentiate between intentionality and accidental failures to comply with certain procedures, because those lead to different solutions. 
if it's intentional, you obviously have to hold that out, that prosecutor accountable, and there has to be some form of discipline and maybe a removal from, from the job. If it's accidental, though, you need to figure out how to fix it so that that information gets where it's supposed to be in the right time. Um, so much of the pushback that we get is that because everybody sort of immediately gravitates to blame as the narrative, it becomes, you know, our, our police and our prosecutors and others are, when, when one of these cases happens, they're very worried about getting sued. They're very worried about getting fired. Uh, and they get into sort of a defensive crouch. Our process should operate kind of beside that, right? Whatever the accountability mechanisms are, that those should work and those should happen. But what we say is, we just want to make the system better. We want to put the next police officer in a better position to succeed. We want to put the next prosecutor in a better position to get the outcome they want. And so that ends up being building that trust and that belief that you can have those conversations and not have them be about personal blame, but instead about how we improve the system and set people up for success. Once people begin to buy into that, they get very excited about the possibilities. Uh, and so that's generally the, the hard part is convincing people of our good faith because it's just a narrative that's different than what we usually fall back on uh, at this point in our society. Mm. Um, is, is your focus 100% on cases of wrongful conviction or do you ever discuss a case such as the George Floyd case? Well, so the deaths in custody that we talked about in Tucson, one of those was actually very similar to uh, the George Floyd case. Oh. It was a situation where um, uh, an individual was in the midst of a substance abuse crisis. Uh, his grandmother called in. Um, the sheep spoke Spanish, and the 911 operator did not speak mm. Spanish. Um, uh, the officers found out that the individual had an outstanding domestic violence warrant. And they charged into this event uh, with an arrest mindset when, in fact, what they were dealing with was uh, a young man who was having a, a drug-induced problem and was naked in a garage in sort mm -hmm. of a, uh, a, a mental health crisis. Uh, and in the ensuing uh, interaction, the police officers did not handle it well. They, were, they resigned rather than being dismissed from the force. They broke a lot of the protocols, and the young man ended up dead. And the question we asked was, you know, again, the accountability process, the Tucson police handled that on their own. What we said was, how could we have helped those officers succeed? Because we don't believe that those officers ran into that house thinking, hey, this is really great. Today we get to have a man die on our watch and lose our jobs. Right. right? And so what could we have done to help them lead that situation differently and get the outcome that they really wanted, which was how do we calm this situation down so that this man and his grandmother can, can figure out what the next step is in their lives, but be healthy and safe? Yeah. So your reach is across the nation, right? Um, that yeah. you, yeah, um, that's incredible that, so you're based in Philadelphia, but uh, that's not a barrier to working uh, across state lines. That's uh, how often do you uh, do you find that you're involved in a case that's uh, very, very far away? 
Um, well, the, I guess very, very far away doesn't mean as much as it used to. I guess. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that has been really um, uh, encouraging has been that we actually have now shown the ability to do these reviews even over Zoom or you know, wow. WebEx or whatever else it, it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't sure that would work because frankly, the, the conversations can get pretty emotional and pretty um, tense and stressful. And there are times when, you know, I, I, had, I had sort of assumed that you would have to be in the room with people for it to work. Uh, but we're, we're showing that it can even be done, you know, through video conference, which has been great. Um, and so, um, but, but yeah, I mean, as we've done Tucson, we're working with, uh, several others, you know, kind of throughout the country right now. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the conditions, one of the things about the criminal justice system is it's so fragmented. Um, you know, there are thousands of police departments across the country. There are um, uh, hundreds of, uh, of DA's offices um, and, you know, hundreds of courts and all of these places have opportunities for improvement. So it's really just a question of, you know, connecting with a jurisdiction when they have a case that they'd like to apply this process to. Uh, and, and we're happy to do that, you know, kind of wherever they are. So, so do they reach out to you or the other way around? It, it has happened both ways. There have been a couple of instances where, you know, we've read something in the paper about a case and we've reached out and said, hey, this, we think this would be a good candidate for this. This is actually something we have some expertise in. Can we help you? Uh, and then there are situations where, like Tucson, where they had heard of what we do, uh, and they call us and say, hey, we've been thinking about an opportunity to use this, and unfortunately for us now we've got one. Uh, you know, can you come help us? I see. I see. Are you encouraged as you look ahead um, in terms of what the Quattrone Center has been able to accomplish um, I am. I mean, I think it, it's been a long time since uh, Denise and Frank Quattrone so generously created the center. Um, but, you know, they had a vision of these sort of event reviews even before the center got started. Uh, and it's been uh, been incredibly fortunate with our other colleagues to work to give that mission some life. Uh, and I think, you know, what we're what we're seeing is as more and more of these reviews happen, the, re- the reports that we're generating, the recommendations for reform, uh, that people are seeing, you know, they see that the reports are balanced and thoughtful about, about and, and really driven on quality improvement. And so I think that is becoming more and more common and people are, are beginning to kind of want to get on that bandwagon. So yeah, I'm very encouraged and I'm hopeful that this will ultimately do what it has done in aviation and healthcare, which is to just become part of the regular system that every, everybody does, that when something bad happens, you do one of these reviews, you learn from it, and that's why in aviation, we have so many fewer plane crashes, despite the fact that we have so many more flights. And in hospitals, that's why we have fewer patient errors, even though we're doing more procedures. And we anticipate that same thing happening in criminal justice as this happens and becomes you know, more of a regular everyday occurrence and less of a big deal. That's, that's great. Well, I, I certainly think uh, it's encouraging to, to look at wrongful conviction with the kind of eye that you look at it with rather than uh, from an innocence project point of view or a conviction integrity unit point of view, which we will be discussing in the next few podcasts to, uh, uh, you know, inform people about that. 
Um, I, I think uh, it, there's so much that needs to be addressed in our criminal justice system, and you are certainly doing that. So um, I thank uh, you well, very Thank you. Uh, it's great that uh, I didn't know about the center, and I'm glad I do. And we look forward to speaking with several of your colleagues in the next few podcasts. So I certainly thank you for taking time to be with us today. And uh, I appreciate your expertise. I, I hope that people are listening and are learning from what we're talking about. And please, please join me for the next several podcasts where we will have uh, Marissa Bluestein and um, Ross Miller and Paul Heaton, all of whom are part of the Quattrone Center based in Philadelphia. So thank you very, very much, um, Dean Holloway, for being with me today. I do appreciate it. Uh, well, thanks for having us all on, and thanks for helping us uh, spread the awareness of this work. We really appreciate it.